0: So we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. Um, Let me just uh, open us up in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are so gracious and merciful. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, uh, the holy scriptures. And we just ask this morning, Lord, that our time in the Bible would be um, about you and your words uh, and about just communion with you and just spending time with you. And so um, we just pray that uh, you would really touch our hearts this morning through this passage. Amen. So there's a lot of moments in life where, uh, you know, I felt or other people felt uh, left out. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever had that feeling where you felt so left out? I recently saw a tweet that really hit home with me and it said, You don't really know... Um, what it feels like to be broke until you've been a kid at a scholastic book fair with no money. And, uh, I thought that was really funny, but that's exactly what happened to me. A couple of different times when I was a kid, all the other kids were buying books and doing that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I didn't have any money to spend on books. I remember being the only one, um, uh, without that books or another time. I remember, um, the whole, we were, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when I was in high school either. And, um, the whole youth group, uh, at my church went on a snow trip and they went up to the camp or to, um, you know, a cabin up in the, the Sierras and played in the snow and everything. And I remember the trip was 85 bucks and my family didn't have 85 bucks to spend on a snow trip. And so the entire youth group went away, uh, hung out on the snow trip without me, uh, and then came back. And then they had all of these stories about, um, about their time on the, on the snow trip. It's like when, uh, in friends, when Phoebe, um, is pregnant and she doesn't get to go to London and they all come back and, you know, she feels totally left out because all of their stories, uh, were about London. That's exactly how I felt just, uh, as such an outsider, right? Everybody else gets to participate and I'm stuck here. Everybody else is something and I'm something else. It's really hard to be an outsider. This is not an easy thing to do and not an easy thing to handle. Think of some of the examples of when people in different situations in life feel like outsiders, like Uh, Think of uh, a kid in a family who's different from the rest of their siblings, and that makes them feel like an outsider, even when they're with their own family, right? You know, the kid from the football family who wants to dance, or the third Manning brother, right? You know, Eli Payton, but there's a third one. And I think he was an accountant or something. I don't know, or whatever he was. That guy must have felt out of place with his two Super Bowl winning brothers. Um, or think of minority groups. It is really hard to be in a place where you are the only person, uh, who looks like you that's never comfortable. Um, you know, or you're an outsider whenever you're the, you're new to a group, right? So if it's Uh, You come to an established church or work or, you know, you join a softball team that everybody already knows each other, whatever it is. It takes a while to move from the outside to the inside of the group. And um, this was one of the problems at my old church, you know, it was a pretty great church, but we had a really tough time with this because so many people, like I grew up in that church and I was a pastor for a while. And, you know, as a guy who had been there since he was 80 something, a lot of people had been at that church since the like 60s, 70s, 80s. And so when new people came, it was hard for them to move to the, the inner circle right? A lot of people I think who showed up um, felt like outsiders. Uh, Studies have shown that there's a lot of, uh, you know, also like there's a lot of elderly people who feel like outsiders because of how younger people treat them uh, and basically move them to the margins of society, or at least in the Western world, that's kind of how we do it. So take a minute right now and just kind of think, maybe pause the video and talk to whoever you're with. I don't know. Just think, well, when was the last time you really felt like an outsider? What did that feel like to you? Uh, uh, how did it, did it make you feel lonely? Did it make you feel scared, upset? Uh, Today's text, what we're going to read about is an outsider. And we're going to read about Jesus dealing with, in this society, what was the ultimate outsider. So let's take a look. Um, We're going to read verses 12 through 16 today. So a little bit of a shorter text. Um, Not a shorter sermon, though. Don't get too excited. All right, here we go. Uh, Verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man uh, full of leprosy. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about leprosy. The first time I remember hearing about leprosy as a kid uh, was uh, through the movie Ben-Hur. So I said earlier, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. And uh, I remember we only had a few VHS tapes and we had Aladdin. So I know every word of every song in Aladdin, you know. Um, we also had the two VHS set of the movie Ben-Hur, the Charlton Heston movie. I don't know what's that probably from the 50s, maybe, um, you know, uh, with uh, Charlton Heston there. And there's one part where his, I think it's his mother and sister uh, go to jail in Roman jail, you know, Uh, it's set in like the time of Christ and uh, they get thrown in this Roman jail. And uh, when he finally finds them, they, somebody opens the door and sees the two of them in the little jail cell together. And he goes, lepers. And I remember as a kid thinking, how did they turn into leopards? You know, I was, for a long time, I was really confused about that. And it wasn't until a little bit later, I think I must have asked somebody that they explained what leprosy was. Well, in the scriptures, leprosy is a topic. It's something that comes up a lot. Leprosy, though, is a word, the Greek and the Hebrew word both, um, is a word that's used for all different kinds of skin diseases. So um, scribes in the time of Jesus had identified over 70 different skin diseases that they all lumped in and they called leprosy. So whenever you read that in the Bible, you have to remember, this covers a wide range of things things. The main uh, disease though, uh, called leprosy is what we call Hansen's disease. It's like in our uh, language, leprosy and Hansen's disease are basically the same thing. And Hansen's disease is brutal. Um, It's a disease where the warning system of pain in your body breaks down and your body just starts to fall apart. And so people with leprosy, Um, As their bodies are falling apart and they they can't feel pain, they do things like accidentally uh, wash their hands with scalding hot water, uh, and then they burn their hands really bad, or they touch a hot stove, uh, or, uh, you know, I was reading about this. I read stories of people in third world countries who Um, have Hansen's disease or leprosy and they wake up and find that rats had chewed their legs apart, stuff like that. It's really, really horrible. Um, Hansen's disease also attacks the coldest parts of your body. So the skin is the coolest organ and that's usually where the disease pops up first. Now, diseases change and morph over time. And so what we call leprosy or Hansen's disease now was probably almost certainly a little bit different from what it was uh, during Bible times, but it was also probably pretty similar. Um, we know from the New Testament times, uh, from hi- we know from history that during these New Testament times, um, Hansen's or uh, sorry leprosy uh, was, often deadly but not always deadly so if you had leprosy remember how horrible we've talked about that remember how horrible the doctors were at this time and just medicine was so bad and so some of these skin diseases uh, and their version of hansen's disease would have been deadly a lot of the time um the old testament law had a lot to say about leprosy and so um in the Old Testament law, there's this idea of clean and unclean or pure and impure. And um, we're going to talk about this more uh, towards the end of the sermon. Uh, but ritual purity was not about sin. Uh, it, um, it was about being in a state where you were, you could not participate Um, In worship, And we're going to get all into that uh, towards the end of the sermon here. But um, basically at the front of this, it's important to know that leprosy made you ritually unclean. So you couldn't participate in synagogue. You couldn't participate in sacrifices and that sort of stuff at the temple. And where this is all covered in the Bible is in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. So let's go back there. We're going to read the whole thing, uh, the book of Leviticus. No, I'm just kidding. I'll just, I'll summarize for you. If you want to go actually read some of this stuff, you can. Uh, It's kind of interesting two chapters, but basically there were steps if you think you had some sort of a skin disease like leprosy, the first step was that you had to show up to a priest and the priest would take a look at your rash or whatever it was and he would quarantine you for seven days. After seven days, you would come back and if the rash had not spread, you would spend seven more days in quarantine. And then after you come back after the 14th day, if the rash had still not spread, then the priest would declare you clean or ritually pure and you were allowed to rejoin society. Um, But if not, if you came back and the rash had spread or whatever it was had spread, uh, he pronounced you a leper and you were officially declared unclean. And here's a part uh, from Leviticus. uh, So here's step three then from Leviticus 13. Uh, This is verses 45 and 46. The leprous person uh, who has the disease should wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside of the camp. So do you see how horrible that is? You have to walk around in ragged, tattered clothes. You're not allowed to wear nice clothes. You're ritually unclean. Everywhere you go, you're supposed to shout, unclean, unclean, and kind of cover your mouth so you're not breathing on everybody. This was the original mask mandate. It comes from Leviticus chapter 13. Now, um, leprosy then after this shows up a lot in the old Testament. There's a lot of examples of famous stories where people became lepers, right? There's, um, the famous one is in second Kings chapter five. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago, um, with Naaman, the, um, the, the enemy general who comes, uh, to be cured of his leprosy. And, uh, that's, you know, and then he's told to wash in the river by the prophet and all that stuff. So we read all that, um, <clears throat> And uh, uh, it was Elisha who healed him uh, and he's healed by washing in the Jordan. And then when 2 Kings, um, in second Kings in second Kings chapter seven, there's this story where the Syrians are sieging Samaria in the north and God miraculously scares away the army um, by making them think that the, um, the Israelites had uh, allies who were on the way, uh, but nobody. So there's a siege in the city and then the army surrounding it. and all of a sudden they all take off, but the people inside the city don't know. And the first people to discover that all the, the army, the enemy army of the Syrians had left were the lepers because they were forced even during a siege to live outside of the city. And so they show up and the enemy camp and they think they find uh, the place empty. So they start ransacking everything and hiding jewelry and that sort of stuff. And then they go tell everybody. But the reason that they were the ones that found it, because even during the siege, they weren't allowed to be there. Um, Then there's a story of Uzziah, the king of Judah. He was given leprosy as a punishment for breaking God's law. The same thing happened to a few other people, including Miriam. uh, Moses' sister was given leprosy uh, for rebelling against Moses' leadership. Now, all that to say that leprosy was awful. Not only was it often fatal, but it made you an outcast. It put you in this permanent state of uncleanness. Uncleanness, is that a word? uncleanness, unclean. You know, we say a word too many times and now you have no idea. I don't know. Uh, It put you in a permanent state of not being ritually clean. There you go. Um, It separated you from society, right? Uh, It separated you from the worship participating uh, in the religion of Yahweh. And so here we have this guy in Luke chapter five. Uh, We meet this guy. Now it doesn't say, if you look closely, it doesn't say, There was a guy who had leprosy. It says that he was full of leprosy. This was not the early stages of this disease. His body was probably completely wrecked uh, by this leprosy. There was no hope for him. And he now... Um, It says here at the beginning of verse 12, he comes to Jesus. This is risky business. Uh, He knew the rules from Leviticus, uh, and he knew that he was supposed to stay outside of the city, and uh, he had to cry out unclean and all this stuff, and he had to wear these certain clothes. Um, But he knew how hopeless his case was. And at a certain point, it's like, who cares, right? Uh, He had no invitation to come meet Jesus. He had no promise that Jesus would even heal him. But still he came. He risked Everything to try to meet this guy, this Jesus. So, verse 12, let's see what happens. I'll read all of verse 12. And so, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy and he saw Jesus. Uh, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So, this guy shows up now and he falls on his face. You can see uh, how desperate he is. He falls on his face and he begs Jesus. He is, he is so desperate. And what he says is, if you will, now that's really interesting. He doesn't say, if you can, it would be really nice if you could heal me, right? Or whatever. He says, no, if you will, he has no, no doubt. It looks like that Jesus can do it if he wants. If the question in his mind is, does Jesus want to? And then notice what he asks too. He says, if you, if you will make me clean, not heal me, not just heal me of this disease, but make me clean. Now, of course he wanted to be healed, but he wanted more than that. He wanted to stop being an outcast, right? He wanted to stop being an outsider. He wanted back in to the people of God, back into society. He wanted this ritual purity. And so put yourself for a minute in this guy's shoes. Try to, as we read the Bible, one of the things I love to do, try to use your imagination, right? Feel his desperation, right? So like, think about his story. He grew up in a you know, as a probably a, a follower of Yahweh reading and learning his Torah, and maybe you have some kind of a, a a normal job, maybe a fisherman or something like that. And then one day you go home and you're sitting in bed and, you know, you notice, wow, there's a, there's a rash on my arm. You think about it for a minute and, you know, you wake up the next day and the next day and after a week or so, you realize, okay, it's spreading. So you go to the priest, just like you're supposed to. There's a a priest that lives in your little town there, um, probably near Capernaum. And, um, Uh, you're, you're inspected by the priest and he tells you you need to go quarantine outside the city for seven days. So you do that. You go camp out and catch a few fish to eat or whatever. I don't know. You hang out outside the city. After seven days, you come back in and you realize the rash has spread. And so the priest officially declares you a leper. And that news hits you like a ton of bricks. And so you have, you, you leave the wife and kids and you move out of town and now you're begging for food on the road into town, but nobody will come anywhere near you. And so your family now is in poverty because you can't work. Uh, there's no unemployment checks in first century Galilee. Uh, they can't really help out. And so you live in this area outside of the city uh, with other lepers, right? The lepers, I think, tended to congregate together. It's like um, in our culture, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is kind of true, but we have a... Um, the sex offender registry. And if you're on that sex offender registry, it is really hard to live anywhere near other people. And so I know in Vallejo, just north of San Francisco, there's a parking lot where all of the people on the sex offender registry that live in Vallejo, they have to sleep in this parking lot in their cars. And uh, they all kind of congregate together. This is... um, uh a lot like what happens with these lepers. So you're out there and every day you're seeing more and more leopards and then at, at some point you probably see somebody die from the disease up close and it's absolutely brutal. Uh, this is probably going to be your fate. And so as you watch this guy or this girl or whoever uh slowly fade away and cough up blood and as their body is falling apart you're watching this and you're terrified. Um, But in addition to that, you're ritually unclean. You've spent your whole life going to synagogue every week, trusting in the sacrifice of the temple, being a part of the people of God. Now you're a covenant member who can't participate in that religion. It is overwhelmingly lonely. And as the days go by, uh, your your fate seems more and more bleak, but you hear about this traveling preacher somehow. Uh, And... Um, uh, you hear about Jesus and somebody recaps to you some of his teaching about the kingdom of God and the upside down kingdom and bringing outsiders in, and you're absolutely blown away. And now you hear he might be uh, in the town, wherever it is, the town uh, where you're staying outside. And so you know in your bones that this is a man of God. And so now that he's in your town, uh, you don't know how long he'll be there. You have to do something, right? And so... um, So you come up with a plan, right? I'm going to go into town tomorrow. I'm going to find him and maybe he'll heal me. And the night before this all happens, you're sitting around the campfire with other lepers and uh, you say to some of them, Hey, does anybody want to come with me? You start going over the plan and all of them, uh, you know, uh, all of them, uh, decide, no, I don't, I don't want to risk it. Right. Maybe they're going to stone me. And so the whole night before you're sitting there and Um, you're going over it in your head. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Is it worth the risk? And then finally you decide to risk it. So you go to bed, you get up the next day, you put on a cloak like a normal clean-ish cloak, uh, cover your head, you sneak into the city. As you're going through the crowds of people, you're trying not to touch anyone. You don't want to contaminate people. Um, And then you finally, you see this big crowd and you think, well, that's got to be Jesus, right? Uh, He's in there somewhere. Uh, probably at the center of this crowd. So you push your way through the crowd. uh, And then when you finally see the one that they called Jesus, you pull the cloak off of your face. You pull the cloak off your head and the whole crowd gasps, gasps, and backs away. Nobody wants to be anywhere near you, but not Jesus. He doesn't even flinch. And so you're here. This is your plan. So you blurt out, "Um, I know you can do it. There's no doubt about that in my mind. But if you're willing, Lord, please heal me. And now here we are. This is it. This is, this is the moment of truth, life or death. It all comes down to this. You've risked everything. What is Jesus? You know, what will Jesus do? Verse 13, look what Jesus does. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus touched him. Isn't there that Bruce Springsteen song, right? Uh, you know, the boss, we all need human touch. Uh, There are, that's true. There are studies that show how much it messes up uh, babies to miss out on human touch. You can actually volunteer at hospitals now uh, to hold babies uh, who have nobody else to hold them. Um, Right now, I've seen a lot of stuff, people writing and talking about coronavirus, how it's messing us up because we're all huddled in our own apartments and everything. And we're away from normal sort of human contact. Um, that's what this guy had been going to. So imagine that, again, put your yourself into this situation. Imagine being him again, right? You, you don't know as you show up to Jesus, you don't know if the crowd is going to stone you. Um, you don't know if Jesus is going to tell you to pound sand and beat it. And he's going to be upset that you risked his life uh, to come and try to be healed. And so you show up and you cry out to him. I, if, if you're willing, I know you can do it. If you're willing, will you? And you look into his eyes with that desperation. You're on the ground, on your knees, bowing down before him, and you look up. And what is looking back at you? What is, what's the expression on Jesus's face? Love. Compassion. And almost with a little smile, he reaches out and he, he touches your face. Your rotten, smelly, falling apart, dying, unclean face. Jesus reaches out and touches it. This man was full of leprosy and Jesus touched his face. He has broken the law of Moses. You're stunned. And then Jesus kind of sees that you're stunned, that you're frozen. And he almost kind of nods his head as if to tell you to look down. You know, he's like, Hey, look, look it. And so you do, and you take your hand out of your cloak. And that's the first thing you look at. And you look and you see, Whoa, my hand is clean. The spots are gone the flesh has been restored and then all of a sudden your stomach drops you know that feeling and you reach up and you touch your face and you realize oh my goodness my face no scabs right no holes then my nose which is usually the first place that leprosy shows up right clean so tears stream down your face but but what do you do next verse 14 and he that's jesus charged him to tell no one but go and show yourself to the priest And make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. So Jesus looks down at him, big smile, and says, look, don't tell everybody. Just go and show the priests. Why did he tell him not to tell everybody? Well, do you remember we talked about this theological idea, the messianic secret? Uh, Jesus didn't always tell everybody that he was the Messiah because he was constantly trying to avoid misunderstandings about what the Messiah was here to accomplish, what he was here to accomplish. And so we saw it last time with demons. He was telling the demons, shut up and quit telling these people that I'm the Messiah. Um, He didn't heal this guy. This is important. He tells him, don't even tell anybody. He didn't heal this guy for publicity. He healed him because he felt compassion for him, because he loved him, right? That's why Jesus healed this guy. So he says, look, you don't have to go and tell everybody. Just go, maybe show the priests. And because in Leviticus, uh, the two chapters are 13 and 14. In 14, there were all these rules about what to do if you were healed uh, of leprosy. I won't get into it all. But basically, a priest was the only person who was allowed to pronounce a leper ritually clean uh, or pure. And so Jesus tells him, look, you know, just go do your thing. You're back in, right? You're, you're brought back into the fold. Verse 15, see what happens next. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So, uh, It doesn't say specifically that this guy went and told everybody, but it is kind of implied, right? Um, It also could have been the priest who inspected him. It could have been a a, a witness. You know, we're not told who else was really here. I said earlier, oh, there's a big crowd. It doesn't actually say that. We don't know who was here i just use my imagination, right? It could have been the disciples who were hanging out. Uh, you know, Peter and James and John at this point are following Jesus around. Either way, whatever it is, Jesus's power to heal is making him more and more famous. Um, but again, right at the peak of his fame and all this, Luke gives us a picture of Jesus's heart and his priorities in verse 16. It says, but he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. This is Jesus. He would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. In Greek, the way the grammar is worded there is that uh, he did what was his usual practice, praying like he always did. Remember that Jesus is the spirit-filled Messiah. He set the privileges and the power of his deity aside while he was here on earth, um, you know uh doing his public ministry and uh that means he needs to recharge his batteries just like the rest of us that means jesus depended on the father depended on the holy spirit just like the rest of us and this verse 16 i actually thought about starting the next sermon with it and maybe i still will i don't know uh, but it's a transitional verse it links from the the cleansing of the leper to the healing of um the guy who's been paralyzed uh, where it talks about uh wait is it verse 17 where it says um uh, and the, yeah, the end of verse 17, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. How is the power of the Lord with him to heal? Because here he is spending time with the father. This is where that power comes from. His, uh, his father is strengthening him. Now, the point of our, our, our study through the book of Luke is to encounter the real King Jesus. That's what we're trying to do, see him face to face, to wipe away any sort of fake versions of Jesus that we've been fed, and to really see him for who he claims to be in his holy and his inspired word. And this passage is uh, great at moving us towards that goal. It tells us a few things um, about the king, right, about Jesus. And i want to give you the, uh, you know, I made a list here. I think there's three things here. So the first one is this. Jesus has real compassion. Um, There was a film. I wrote a paper um, in a theology class when I was in seminary about uh, how Jesus is portrayed in films. And so I watched, I don't know, dozens and dozens of movies about the life of Jesus. Um, And in one of those movies, uh, one of those movies was a film from 1964. It was an Italian film. So I watched it with subtitles, but it was called The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Uh, Oh, I forget the guy's name. You can Google it. Uh, Anyway, some famous Italian director uh, made this movie and I haven't seen it in years. I didn't even look it up uh, prepping for this sermon. I don't know. But what I remember about the movie was how angry Jesus was. And he almost is like walking through the corridors of Jerusalem, barking his sermon on the Mount or barking, you know, his teachings at people who are following him. Right. There's there's it's all just sort of anger. Right. There's no joy in his face. There's no compassion. There's no love. That's not the picture that Luke paints here. The the picture that Luke paints here is that Jesus is filled with compassion. This man uh, with leprosy, you know, full of leprosy, covered with leprosy, who's probably dying of it, comes to Jesus and asks asks, um, to be made clean. And what does Jesus do? Jesus could have stood at a distance and he could have said, you know what? your faith is amazing that you believe that I can do this. And so stand over there and now you're healed, right? Or something like that. Get away from the crowd. Don't, that's not what Jesus does. This guy comes, he falls at Jesus's feet and Jesus either leaned down or maybe Jesus bent down to one knee and he touched him. That, that phrase in that Luke puts in here was not on accident. Everybody who would have read this in the first century would have gone, whoa, he did. What? I mean, the closest thing in our, um, in our culture to something like this dangerous would be to do a blood transfusion or, you know, to take blood or something, you know, with somebody who's HIV positive, something with blood with somebody who's HIV positive. Anybody in our culture would go, what are you nuts? That that's always deadly. Why would you do that? That's what Jesus does. That's how much Jesus loves this guy. But so not only does he heal him, he shows him compassion. He shows him how much he cares. And that leads us uh, to the second idea. The second idea is this, that uh, Jesus has the power to make the unclean clean. And so I actually wrote out like a pretty, um, lengthy explanation of this one. And then I realized, wow, everything I just wrote was just pilfered from the Bible project video. And since we're doing these sermons, um, digitally right now, Uh, instead of reading my script and, uh, you know, saying it not as well as Tim Mackey and the Bible Project video guys will, I'm just going to show you the Bible Project video. So uh, I'll see you back here in, I think it's like five and a half minutes.
1: You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So. God is holy because he is morally perfect.
2: Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So, a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful as the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so, you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy.
1: Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there is this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you are impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it is bad, but because it is so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals
1: because he's standing on holy ground and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says,
2: hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence and whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple you're in proximity to God's holy presence which is dangerous
1: yeah this is a problem so how's it supposed to work
2: well in the Bible the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim.
1: Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs>
2: totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So, this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it is remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here is this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness, he's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive.
1: So, instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean?
2: We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus but instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing flowing out of them.
1: So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves
2: now. But where is this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it is by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life.
0: So that's the video. That's pretty great, right? I really love, especially the theme videos, and I don't know, all the stuff that those Bible Project guys do is pretty amazing. Um, but that's what thats what uh, we see here in this passage. It's important to notice something. This guy shows up to Jesus, and he doesn't just ask... Um, He doesn't just ask to be healed. He asks to be made clean. And that video really explains why that was so important to him, to be made ritually clean. And just like they said in the video, with everybody else in in the history of Israel, if you touch something that's unclean, then that transfers to you. You then are made unclean. But then when Jesus comes along, right, it's different. It's not the same with Jesus. When he comes in contact with something that's unclean, his purity transfers the other way. And so it wasn't risky for him to reach down and touch this guy's face, full of leprosy, because what happened was the purity was transferred from Jesus um, to this leper. And then the third idea then um, is this: uh, he has a heart. Jesus has a real heart for bringing outsiders in. All right? Look at the heroes, and Luke is really good at 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 um, uh, getting this point across. Uh, so far, just we're only on chapter five here in the book of Luke, but look at the heroes of the gospel of Luke so far. Who do we have? We have Elizabeth, who was a barren older lady that society looked down upon. We have Zachariah, who was a nothing priest, uh, who not really that important. We have Mary, who was basically a teenage girl who everybody looked down on because they thought she was pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, we have um, the shepherds, you know, the the sort of uh, blue collar workers that all of society really looked down on. Um, we have John the Baptist who, let's be honest, that guy's a real weirdo. We have Peter, James, and John, just every ordinary day fisherman. And we're only on chapter five. There's really nobody so far in this story that's high and lofty in the eyes of society right? These, these people are, are nobodies, but they're the heroes of this story. And look look at the teachings then of Luke so far. So we have the, the the characters are showing us that this is God's plan to bring outsiders in, but we also have the teachings of that we've read about so far in the book of Luke, specific things that people have said. Like, look at what the angel said when he's announcing to the shepherds that the Messiah is coming. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And this is it. That will be for all people, right? Not just for some of the people, but now this message is going from the Jewish folks, the covenant people of God who considered themselves insiders. This message is now going out uh, to everybody. Or look at uh, Simeon. Do you remember the prophet Simeon who met Jesus uh, in the temple and uh, who was promised that he would see the Messiah uh, before he dies? This is, this is his uh, teaching here or, you know, his prophecy, Lord, he prays, uh, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, uh, for your people, Israel. So Simeon got it. Outsiders are coming in. The genealogy, continue on, the genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam to show that he is going to be the Messiah, not just of the Jewish uh, folks, but and the covenant people, but of everybody. Um, and then we have Jesus in chapter four being tossed out of his home synagogue for saying that Jesus will be welcomed in. Uh, do you remember this from Luke 4? Uh, Luke 4, 24. Let me read this real quick. Uh, 24 through 27. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up uh, for three three and a half, uh, wait, what was that say? Sorry. For three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah went to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah. Uh, This is what we talked about earlier with Naaman. But only one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things uh, all in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. Right? That's what happened. Uh, Jesus was teaching specifically, telling two stories about outsiders Uh, being used and being a part of the story of God. And now here we are in chapter five. We have this leper. Uh, Think of in our culture right now, think of somebody with coronavirus, COVID-19, diagnosed positive with the virus. And what we do as a society is we quarantine those people off, or we're supposed to, uh, and we do that for the good of society. But imagine for a second, uh, as hard as this might be to imagine, uh, try and imagine that COVID-19 was 100% or almost 100% fatal, and that it lasted for your entire life. What would there, that there was no cure. What would we do as a society? Um, if you got coronavirus like that, you'd instantly be an outsider. That's kind of close to what it was like to be a leper in the first century. Uh, The difference, though, is that our society, or this society, this Roman society, was brutal. Human life was uh, so much less valuable to the Romans uh, than it is now for, you know, the Western world. And, I mean, we could talk all day about that, but the basic reason is because the influence of uh, the idea of the image of God from uh, the Christian worldview. And so, you can imagine just what an outsider this guy was. Uh, and Jesus brings him back in. Outsiders in. That's the heart of God. Now, there's the ultimate case of this. The ultimate example of outsiders being brought in is not lepers, right? It's not Gentile, you know, whatever it is. It, it's you, right? Your redemption, our redemption, is the ultimate example of this. Sin has made us outsiders, literally uh, in the garden of Eden in chapter three of Genesis, humanity was thrown out of the garden, separated from God's presence. You know, he'd walk around in the cool of the day, hanging out with Adam and Eve. Well, not anymore. Sin has separated us from God. So the ultimate outsider is not being a part of something, uh, here on earth. Our ultimate, um, sort of out being an outcast is being an outcast from the presence of God and human religion. The the history of human religion is the story of outsiders trying to figure their way back in. And most, um, world religions throughout history are based on something we do. You can do this. And, uh, this is how you'll earn your way back in and you'll spend your whole life trying and trying, but the truth is that nothing will work. Nothing that you can do, uh, can move you back into God's presence. Um, right? This is exactly what Paul explains uh, in Ephesians chapter two. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Ephesians chapter two. Um, I've I've read different parts of this chapter before. I think Ephesians chapter two. Oh man, this is such a good part of the Bible. It's one of my favorite parts. All right. So um, Paul explains this right here to the Ephesians. This is what he's talking about here. uh, And I'll start in verse, where am I? Uh, Verse 12, right? Yeah. Verse 12. Uh, Paul says this, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope uh, and without God in the world. So Paul says, look, you guys, the ultimate way that you were an outcast is that you were separated from Jesus and you have no hope. You had no hope of reconciliation, none. Well, that is no hope uh, unless you come to Jesus and let him do it. Unless you come to Jesus and beg him, just like this leper, uh, if you're willing, Jesus, make me clean. Uh, And of course, the gospel is that Jesus says, of course, I'll do that. But look at how Jesus will do that. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who uh, who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. How are we brought near? How are we no longer outsiders, uh, to the life of the Trinity, to the life of God. It's through the blood of the cross. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. You think that Jesus touching this leper's face was risky? You know it was a lot more risky? Flogging, crucifixion, facing the wrath of God, the wrath of God being poured out on him in our place, right? In the story in Luke, in this story, he touched a leper. But in our story, in the gospel story, he becomes the leper. He switches places. He takes our uh, impurity so that we can have his purity. And so remember why we are reading the book of Luke. The reason that we're reading this book is because we want to be, we want to come into contact with the real Jesus. We want to see the real Jesus. And that's who Jesus really is. That's his heart. That's what he was willing to do uh, to bring us, the ultimate outsiders, back into the life of the Father. And so I'll just end now by reading uh, verses 17, 18, and 19, and then we'll pray. This is how we're gonna. Um, this is how we're gonna end the sermon. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit. Sorry, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And here's the key. This is the, one of the coolest verses in the Book of Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders because of the cross in verse 13, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then Paul continues. Isn't that such a wonderful truth that we, right, the sinners have been brought back into the fold by the love of God because his heart is to take the outsiders and bring them back in. Let's pray. So, God, we thank you that your heart is not like ours. Where we are selfish and sinful, you are selfless and pure. And we thank you that on the cross you switched places with us and that you transferred your purity to us. And, Lord, we admit that a lot of times we we forget that and that we try uh, so desperately to do things to earn your approval. Um, we try to get rid of this this. this uh, you know this this leprosy of sin, right? On our own, but but that's not how it works, Lord. And so we thank you that your grace covers even that sin. We thank you that you are uh, that, that that this is your heart to love the outsiders and to bring them back, because Lord, that's us. We are outsiders, separated from you by sin. And going forward, Lord, as a church, we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us. You know, as we're reading this Art of Neighboring book together, we just pray that your Spirit would empower us to love the people around us uh, who are also outsiders from the kingdom of God, so that they can see you and be brought back in. We pray that you would just, uh, you know, like Elisha prayed about Elijah, or, you know, asked Elijah, you know, give me a double portion of your spirit, um, That's what we want with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We just want even a fraction of your heart to love our neighbors. And so just make us that kind of a church, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.